How about 25 more minutes? You got it in you? Let's do 25 more minutes. And let's do it in John chapter 8. I said last night that the goal, my, like my goal for, for our time together, and really my hope for us all throughout the course of the week, is that we would not only sort of know the love of Christ, but we would be held by the love of Christ. That God would do something in our midst, that, he would, um, that, that the gospel would come and kick our butts, right? And that we might be different, that we and Pirate Joe, uh, Dave, Pirate Joe? Who's Pirate Joe? I don't know. <laughs> but me and Pirate Dave uh, would all be in the same, in the same category together. And to unpack some of those ideas over the next few nights, I said we'd look at three of the questions that Jesus asks us in the Gospels. It's a great study, it's a topical study, certainly not original to me, and a great one to do um, as, as a study with, you, with your students. Uh, look, first of all, at the questions people come and ask God in the Scriptures. Uh, that's a great study to do because it really creates this atmosphere and culture of, hey, whatever your questions are, you can bring them to God. The Bible's full of people with all kinds of questions that they come and bring to God. So whatever you're wrestling with, know that the church is the place to bring those questions. This isn't the place where you check your questions at the door. This is the place you come and bring all your, all your questions. And then, having looked at some of those, you can then turn and say, Okay, uh, but you know God has some questions for us. Uh, beginning back in Genesis, where are you? Right. Uh, proceeding all throughout the scriptures and certainly into the New Testament as well. And So we're going to look at three of the questions Jesus has for us tonight. Has no one condemned you? Tomorrow, do you want to be healed? The night after, do you love me? Um, John 8, uh, we're going to work through verse uh, 2 through 11 of this, of this text. First, though, let, me, let me pray. Father, be with us in these moments that we would see Jesus. Uh, that's the, the hope of our hearts and the great need of our souls. Let me pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That prayer that we would see Jesus is a prayer I pray a lot um, because it's the verse that's printed on our pulpit uh, at McLean. You know, when you, when you preach in a bunch of different places, it's amazing the things that you see behind the pulpit, all right? Uh, sometimes really random things. Like I preach in places, there's like an old toothbrush and a shot glass. It's kind of like, this is weird, right? Um, like weird signs that say things like, you know, the toilet is broken. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this information. Uh, my favorite one, super passive-aggressive sign behind the pulpit that said, the service ends at 12 o'clock. You're kind of like, okay, I'm getting the message. The sermon will not run long. But uh, in our church, there's this plaque uh, from John 12, 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And isn't that a beautiful thing? That's the last thing you see before you preach. Isn't that the right thing to see before you preach? Because isn't that what our hearts need, what our hearts hope for? Seeing Jesus abide with me, what a beautiful song to lead into this. Um, it fulfills the deepest longings of our souls for acceptance and purpose and joy. But it also seeing Jesus also transform li- life in practical ways too. Like it's, it's your union with Christ, abiding with him that enables you to deal graciously with that kid in your ministry who's just been a total punk. It's seeing Jesus that gives you the courage and the humility to not put your self-worth in attendance or numbers. It's seeing Jesus that enables you not to compare yourself to others. Gives you peace in your soul when you don't know what to do next. On and on we could go. And my hope and prayer in this passage is that we'll see Jesus together. So let's start 
in verse 2. You ready? Early in the morning, we read. So we're in Jerusalem, okay? The sun is rising. A rooster crows, a dog barks. We can imagine dusty streets are starting to come alive. Market stalls are are opening uh, with their produce for, for the day. Children with sleep in their eyes are starting to play games in the streets. And look at verse 2. Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and talk. Isn't this fascinating? Despite the early hour, a crowd has, has gathered around uh, Jesus. Uh, they stand, kind of horseshoed around the teacher who sits. That's how it works in those days. In our days, the teacher stands and everyone else sits. In those days, everyone else stood and the, and the teacher sat down. And people are listening to every word that Jesus said. Don't you wish... Why do we have podcasts now? Right? Don't you wish a podcast then? You listen to Jesus preach. Oh man, to hear the greatest preacher that ever lived. No doubt some that are there that morning are are curious. They've gotten up early to hear this man they've heard so much about. Um, Some no doubt are, are cautious because Jesus says things that are both beautiful and disarming and then just like challenging to the core. Do you find this in your own personal devotions? Like, pay attention to what Jesus says. Like, when I read the, when I read about Jesus, I love everything he does. I love half of what he says, and the other half, I'm just like, Oof. right? It's challenging. It's 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 convicting, and no doubt some there uh, were that way. Others, no doubt, are are convinced there because they find Jesus more refreshing than sleep. Now, we don't have the podcast. We don't know what he was talking about that morning, but whatever the sermon was, it's soon interrupted by this commotion, this disturbance, this noise. Imagine, look at verse 3. Imagine verse 3 happened in our midst, right? Imagine it happened right now, down the corridor of this church, busting into this classroom. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. Okay, here come the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember these people? Religious important men in their own eyes as well as everyone else's as one they burst into the crowd furrowed brows all indignation and in their wake we see this barely dressed woman she's been what caught in the act of adultery so moments before as the city woke she'd been lying in the arms of a man who wasn't her husband and then a crash at the door yanked from her bed and marched through the streets by men the age of her father they shove her into the middle of the crowd right in front of jesus can you can you imagine being exposed like that can you imagine how she's feeling in 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 this moment Her deepest shame suddenly held out before the crowd. Verse 4. The holy dudes say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to him to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Right. You starting to see what these holy guys are up to? They're not here because they're genuinely concerned about the law or genuinely concerned about justice. Uh, How do we know that? If they were, they'd have brought the man too. The law condemned him as well, right? This is the selective outrage of a patriarchy that's using this woman as a pawn in their own game. Their game that's designed to trap Jesus. 
So in some smoke-filled room, they've come up with this kind of classic catch-22 situation. Because if Jesus says you should stone this woman, he'll be breaking the law of Rome. Remember, Israel at this time is under Roman rule, and the Romans said that the Israelites didn't have the legal right to uh, execute capital punishment upon, upon any of, of her citizens. And so if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and, and stone her, he'll be breaking the law of Rome. Yet, on the other hand, if he says, don't stone her, he'll be breaking the law of Moses. The Old Testament commands that said, not just a woman, a woman and a man who were caught in adultery ought to be stoned. So these religious guys figure, look, we've got him. Either way, no matter what he says, we'll have a basis to bring a charge against him. They're playing a game here, trying to trap Jesus. We wonder what's going on in this woman's mind at this point, right? She sees the crowd, all eyes fixed on her. She sees these religious leaders holding rocks in their hands, ready to stone her. Um, all this takes place where? In the temple? Remember, that's where they are? In the shadow of the place where you went to make atonement for your own sin? In the very place that made you painfully aware of just how sinful you are? This woman has been exposed before the crowd. But, what else does she see? <laughs> Look at verse 6. Along with the crowd, the religious leaders, the temple, she sees Jesus. But she's not exactly sure what to make of what Jesus is up to. Look at verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Amidst all the drama, Jesus takes a knee and he starts to etch something in the dust. And can't you just imagine the crowd sort of jostling to try and see what it is that he's, he's writing? Religious leaders, no doubt, rolling their eyes, but then also peeking to see what it is that, that he writes. This woman, no doubt, imagine <laughs> the immense relief she feels as for the first time that day, all eyes are no longer on her. Yeah. What does Jesus write here on the ground? Well, after 2,000 years of church history, a week of extensive study, I can reveal we have no idea. Right? <laughs> we have absolutely no idea. And it's amazing how much the scholars and the commentators get into so much angst and do all kinds of gymnastics to try and you know, suggest what it is that, that Jesus, in fact, wrote here. We don't, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. That's not the purpose of this passage. We don't know what to make of it. The woman didn't know what to make of it. And from verse 7, it looks like the religious leaders don't really know what to make of it either. No doubt they exchange bewildered looks, and then look what they do. They just... <laughs> um, they're ideologues, so all they know what to do is to say what they just said, only this time louder. Yeah? You know, you know, that, you know that person in the argument? Like, you make a point, they make a point, you make a really good point, counterpoint, so they just make their point louder, right? That's what they're, that's what they're doing here. Verse 7, they continue to ask him, stone her or not, Moses or Rome, whose side are you on? But Jesus stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Yes, Jesus. Don't you li like, <laughs> these religious guys, they think they're so smart. They have no idea who they're messing with. They have no idea who they're messing with. That Jesus, this gentle, gracious teacher, is also God Almighty, and he cannot be toyed with, and he cannot be played with, because like he's not safe. right? And so he gives this answer, and what he does is brilliant. Isn't it brilliant? Because he doesn't... Note, see how he doesn't make light of her sin. 
He doesn't say, oh, adultery is not that bad, right? He doesn't make light of her sin. What he does is shine a light on their hypocrisy. So he doesn't say anything else. Sin and adultery is not a big deal. What he does do is, is highlight to them and to all who are watching that they themselves are being hypocritical in the accusations that they bring. If your life is free from sin, Jesus says, have at it. And then, verse 8, once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Right? It's kind of a mic drop moment. He's done. Back to doodling. Right? No doubt a silence in the air as we await some sort of response. Right? Can you imagine what the woman's thinking at this time? Right? Um, you know, feet shuffle, eyes drop, then the silence is broken, verse 9, as one by one rocks start to fall from their hands. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest ones. Isn't that good? In response to this command of Christ, the religious leaders melt back into the crowd. Their accusations melt with them. And it's significant. It is significant that it's the gray hairs that leave first. Like, I'm mar- like this is really good. Like, as a bunch of young dudes, right? Let's remember, like, um, spiritual maturity is measured in humility. Like, the more mature you are, the more humble you are. The more mature you are, like, you're the first to leave. You know? It's the, it's, the, it's the young, stupid, arrogant Pharisees and scribes that stick around to the end thinking that maybe, no, they do have the right to do this. You know? Like, we want to be like a group of young leaders who, who are excelling in humility. Our maturity would be evidenced in humility. It's the older ones that leave first, then the younger ones leave, everyone's left, no one's fit to cast a stone except who? Except Jesus. Look at verse 9. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, listen, friends, can I just tell you, you know this isn't the turn yet. Like, every great story has a turn, but this isn't it yet. This isn't the kind of like, ah, moment of the text. This is like a deeply dangerous, ominous moment in our story. Why? Because Jesus has said, if you are, if you are free from sin, you can stone her. If, if you haven't sinned, you have... This is what, you know, we know what the law says. If you, if you are free from sin, then yes, go ahead and be the first to throw a stone at her. So Jesus is left alone because he is without sin. And we have a sinful woman and a sinless man and a big pile of rocks. And in the shadow of the temple, this place where you went to make sacrifices for your sin, she knew that she was deserving of, of punishment. And so what's Jesus going to do? Well... In this hopeless situation, verse 10, he speaks grace. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I love the details of how Jesus deals with people. Like, He knows that everyone's already left. Why does he ask her this question? He's calling her attention to it. He's getting her to lift up her eyes and see that, that no one has condemned and as he looks around, she says, as he says, no one, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord, verse 11. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. All right. Two things, okay? Two things and we're done. In this context, this hopeless context, Jesus speaks a word of grace with, with uh, you know, two sides to it. A coin with two sides. He speaks forgiveness and he speaks freedom. 
Forgiveness and freedom. So first of all, he speaks forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. Isn't this great? They can't condemn you, and I can condemn you, but I won't. I I have the right to condemn you, but I won't. And this is like, this is gospel talk, which means it's not cheap talk. It's, It's costly talk. It's the story of the gospel, right? That Jesus could pick up a stone and kill her, but he doesn't want to kill her because he knows he's going to be killed for her. That's how the gospel works, right? It isn't a story of justice. You know, we're not a people who cry out for justice. We're people who cry out for mercy, Having received the mercy of God, we move out into the world to extend his kingdom and see justice happen. But first and foremost, before our God, we we stand calling out for mercy. On the cross, Jesus took everything so that we need be condemned for nothing. And so we just remind ourselves, you know, the day is coming uh, when we'll see Jesus face, face to face. We'll stand alone before him with a pile of rocks. And the only one who could condemn us offers to forgive us. The one who could kill us would rather be killed for us. And so if you have forgiveness in him, what does Romans say? There is now therefore no condemnation. And that's a good word. The fact that we are no longer condemned, this is a good word. Maybe, you know, that, you know that foreboding sense you have that, like, God holds something against you? He doesn't. <coughs> you know that foreboding sense that you're just, like, doing a horrible job in ministry? That, that whisper of condemnation? That maybe you hear from your boss, you know, senior pastors are the worst, right? Maybe you hear from them. Maybe you hear from parents. Maybe, do you know for many of us... Um, we hear it most from ourselves. This sense of like, who are you to be in ministry? Like, who are you? Like, hey, let's drag your greatest shame into the into the middle of the room right now. Who's who's worthy? You know, who feels like they, they're they're worthy to do this thing that God has called us to do? All these whispers of condemnation that come that come to us. That Jesus says, that, look, forgiveness is full and forgiveness is free and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the people who are to be in ministry and the people who are going to be useful in ministry are not the people who have it all together, but are the people that have experienced brokenness and in that place received grace. That's who God uses to extend his grace to, to this world. So where, where do you hear whispers of condemnation in your life? Your boss, your parents, from yourself, from Instagram, where is it? I don't know. But there's no condemnation, and Christ's forgiveness has come. So, after giving forgiveness, Christ speaks a second word, and it's the word of freedom. Neither do I condemn you, he says, so go now and leave your life of sin. Right? Neither do I condemn you, go, and from now on, Jesus says, sin no more. Now, the meaning of these words is established by their order. Right? The order is everything here. The order is really important. It's not, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Just dwell on this for a second. Like, uh, Scott Saul likes to say, like, if you switch the order of this, this phrase, you lose the entire gospel. And he's right. The, the, the meaning of these words is established by, the, by their order. It's not sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. It's, I don't condemn you, therefore sin no more. In the gospel, obedience doesn't lead to grace. Grace... Leads to obedience. 
this is this is how it works. The transformative nature of our faith is an implication, a result of downstream from how we have been saved. So understand that Jesus' words here, they're not a warning. Right? They're not a warning. He's not saying to her, like, okay, I saved you this time. But you got lucky. Skin of your teeth from now on, get out there and do better. Try harder. Improve. But that, that's not what Christ is, is saying here. They're not a warning. Instead, they're a command to enjoy the freedom of grace, the freedom of joyful obedience. Because you are no longer condemned, because you are forgiven full and free, you can now live a new life of joyful obedience to me. Do you know what it's like? The best illustration I could think of for this was actually um, from when Jesus deals with the paralytic. Do you remember he says, Son, your sins are forgiven? And everyone says, oh, who does he think he is to, you know, forgive sins? And it's this great, it's this sort of great ironic moment in Scripture because they're complaining. They know that only God can forgive, sin or for, can forgive sin. They just don't get that Jesus is God, right? They were like completely right and absolutely wrong all at the same time. <laughs> Jesus says, son, your for, sins are forgiven. And then what does he say? Rise, take up your mat, and walk. See what the order? He grants forgiveness... Then he grants freedom. Right? Your sins are forgiven. Now go and live a new life, he says. That's the tone that, that Jesus is speaking to, to this woman in. It's not a warning. It's a command to enjoy this new life. He's saying, listen, yes, I'm enough for your forgiveness. But do you see what sin has done to your life? You see how sin always promises some kind of intimacy, some kind of uh, warmth. But see how it's left you like naked and ashamed in front of the crowd. It nearly killed you, so leave it behind. Go and sin no more. I've got something much better for you. It's the kingdom life of obedience to God. The kingdom life of righteousness built on the foundation of grace, whereby having been accepted full and free in Him, we can now live different lives for Him. Justification and then sanctification. Right? You, you know all of this stuff. Right? Being precedes doing. We've spoken about this already today, right? The gospel changes us and then it empowers us to be different. And I just want us to live into that obedience. Like, lean in with me. How are you living in this obedience and and where are you holding on to aspects of your old life? Are there areas in your life where you're just not surrendering them, them to Jesus? Areas of your your own story that you're just not prepared to leave behind? Prideful self-reliance, perhaps, where you've pushed God to one side? Is it finding worth in your achievements so that you're working all the time? Is it dealing with stress through drinking or pornography? Like, wh- wh- or what is it? Wh- where do you see aspects of your holding on to your own life, holding on to your old story? Um, my mentor used to say, Ministry will make you holy or a hypocrite. Isn't that good? If we're not going and sinning no more, um, we're going to pretend that we are. Because we're in ministry. So either we're going to pretend that we're getting holier while actually being hypocrites. Or we're actually going to become holier. Now get this. The mentor who always drilled that into me, had an affair 
left his wife, blew up his family, and is no longer in ministry. Knowing that ministry makes you holy or hypocrite doesn't make you holy. Right? It might make you even more of a hypocrite. <coughs> that's, that's what it did in his life. And so Jesus would call to us these, this gentle word of freedom. Hey, see the sin that you're struggling with? The sin that you keep, you keep hidden? Let's not live that way anymore. Like, you don't have to live that way anymore. We can live new lives now. We have the freedom of, of joyful obedience. And you know what? A week like this, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? We'd all, you know we'd all really celebrate if for someone this week, this week was a turning point? Because a hidden sin that you had cherished, you brought into the light of the community that you have here. And people came around you and, and helped you and encouraged you and enabled you to repent and move forward in, in health and obedience to Jesus. That this week was like a turning point for you. You know, like, if you're sitting there with some secret shame, you know, like, you, everyone in the room would rejoice if that happened in your life this week. No, we wouldn't, like, run out of the parking lot and pick up stones. We would celebrate that you're moving toward holiness, not toward hypocrisy. Okay. Let me wrap up. Thinking of this woman. When the moment came, there's no condemnation. Jesus speaks words of forgiveness and freedom. When we see Jesus, we see the same today. He says to us, as no one condemned you, so go. From now on, sin no more. We have forgiveness in Christ, so we can live with freedom (coughs) in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there's something about the gospel that's just so counterintuitive. We can't really get our heads around a a faith that would say, um, not only is it okay that we're broken and a mess, but it's actually a prerequisite that we come and understand that reality. That we would see our brokenness, that we would see our mess, and that we would turn from it to receive grace. There's just this hardwired tendency within us, Lord, in our own sin to, to try and keep sin hidden, to keep it secret, to keep it silent. And in ministry, Lord, to add guilt and shame to that because we know better. So, Lord, would you enable each of us to walk in the, the freedom of the gospel today? Having received forgiveness, having been freed from condemnation, would we be men and women who live out this uh, forgiveness by living in the, the freedom of joyful obedience? And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.